This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm used to being the only woman in the boardroom. I'm used to raising capital because my businesses require risk capital to fund them in a room where I pitch exclusively to men. And after a while, you don't really notice, and that's wrong. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, why not follow us on Instagram, where we post daily? You'll find us if you search for Don't Stop Us Now podcast. And now for this week's episode. On the show this week is Debbie Wasco, a serial entrepreneur who sold her third business, Love Home Swap for $53 million. In March last year, Debbie co-founded the Albright, Britain's first members-only club specifically for businesswomen. The Albright, named after Madeleine Albright, also offers an online academy and a community that aims at creating opportunities for women to thrive and flourish. They're expanding this year to a second premises in London, and they're due to open in LA as well. In addition to successfully selling two businesses, Debbie's also recently been awarded the Evening Standard Entrepreneur of the Year for 2018, and the Evening Standard is a British newspaper. She's a member of the Mayor of London's Business Advisory Board and has also been awarded an Order of the British Empire, or OBE. In this episode, you'll hear why Debbie's mission is to create a monster global sisterhood of kick-ass women. Woohoo! The recent pitch that Debbie and her co-founder used to raise £9 million, why it's crucial to have a rhino hide, as she calls it, the three Gs she looks for when deciding whether to invest in a business, and how she uses her intuition and what she still gets wrong after 20 years. We spoke to Debbie at the fabulous Albright Club in London. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the trailblazing Debbie Wasco. Debbie, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, actually, you're having us, I think. <laughs> That's true. Thanks for having me in my own building. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're here in London at Albright, and we'll hear more about Albright in a moment. Just to kick off, you're a serial entrepreneur. I think this is your fourth business. It is my fourth business, yeah. And you've sold two. It's an addiction. Yes, that's right, yes. An addiction, exactly. So can you describe your career today just in a couple of sentences? I know that's a big question, but just how you would describe it? Sure. I mean, I always describe myself as having had a very scrappy career and being completely unemployable. So I... 
graduated from Oxford University a long time ago now. I've had three years of employment in my life, really, where I worked as a not very successful management consultant. And I set up my first business in 1999 when I was 25. And that was a digital marketing agency in the early infancy of Dotcom One, which I built and sold over the next eight years. And since then, I founded and sold a couple of other businesses, the latest of which was called Love Home Swap, which was home exchange for holidays, a little bit like the movie The Holiday. And off the back of that, a year ago, I founded my new business, Albright, which is all about changing the conversation for working women across the globe. Which is fantastic. And we're very much behind that. Thank you. Now, how did your childhood impact, you know, this big entrepreneurial bent that you've clearly got? Yeah, I think when you think about the sweep of history and you look back at why you've become the person that you are, it's easier to join the dots. I think things always make more sense with the benefit of hindsight. And I'm from a very entrepreneurial family. It's a Jewish immigrant family to the UK. I didn't know anyone who had a job. Everybody ran businesses. My grandparents were entrepreneurs. And in particular, the women in my family have been successful entrepreneurs and mothers. And I think seeing that just totally normalizes it. My grandmother ran a chain of sweet shops and off licenses. My formative years were spent watching her drive around in the armored van. She never learned to reverse <laughs> delivering the money to the bank. My mum is an entrepreneur and, and has five children. So I think you have to see it to be it. That's very important in the later stages of, of my recent career when I think about how can we change the conversation for women. So much of what I am is just what I've known. And I think that that de-risks it. De-risks it. If you see people always continually iterating their entrepreneurial journey, they would never have referred to it as that you know they arrived in this country with nothing they built up businesses they sold fruit and veg on the market and off the back of that I think you learn to appreciate really really hard work and the output of hard work so that was always the backdrop I think for those families Jewish immigrant families hard work is prized alongside academic excellence so there was no sort of slouching in that area you know it's utterly mandatory that all of us attended Oxford etc etc but I think seeing those things as normal means that you don't ever question your own ability to make it happen because you've seen so many other people in your extended family do it yeah absolutely what a gift yeah I guess so I mean again I didn't really see it like that at the time and actually and I think if it was my own children it can be monstrously inconvenient having a parent who's an entrepreneur they work all the time they're constantly trying to juggle but I think that I wouldn't have had it any other way and obviously to a great extent it's made me who I am because it created somehow in me and it's a nature nurture conversation the ability to sort of roll the dice and take risks. And I think that that becomes much more likely if you've grown up in that kind of environment. Yeah, for sure. And you talked earlier about wanting to change the conversation for women around the globe. How would you summarize which bit of the conversation in particular you really want to change? The thing for me, and this has been an aspect of my career ever since it began, is I'm very, very used to being the only woman. I'm used to being the only woman in the boardroom. I'm used to raising capital because my businesses require risk capital to fund them in a room where I pitch exclusively to men. 
And after a while, you don't really notice. And that's wrong. It's wrong not to notice. And Albright and the journey behind it began three years ago. I was set up at a party by a mutual friend with the woman who's now my co-founder, Anna Jones, who was at the time the CEO of Hearst, the publishing business. And he said, you two should be friends. And it's all about that really is about the power of going out. My mother always said to me about men that you would never meet them in your kitchen. And I think the same is sort of right about interesting people in your life. And it was classically at a party that I couldn't really be bothered to go to. You know, you sort of turn up and you meet this person who changes your life for for both of us. And, And the real point of connection as well as friendship, we're both northerners we're from a family with a lot of sisters we've got two kids of similar ages we're juggling like mad we're trying to figure it out both got quite dark senses of humor there was this common bond around why are there still so few women and the stats are dreadful so to just fire a few of them off for you in 2016 just over two percent of all capital raise went to back female founders some uk stats are that one in six people in leadership positions in corporates are women one in six wow. one in ten women in the uk say they want to start their own business but they don't and 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 for both of us who've been at it for a while Those stats have not improved. In fact, the 2018 stats on women on boards of the FTSE 250 in the UK has gone down from the previous year. So it felt like, okay, we're not making progress. Both of us have got something of a platform because of what we do and what we've done before. If we combined and and joined forces, what's the essay question that we're trying to answer? And beginning with the UK, although our sites are much more global now, it was how do you make the UK a better place to be a working woman? And what does it take? And on the back of a cocktail menu, because that's where it all began, as many great things do. Absolutely. um, We had a scribbled title of Project Albright. And it was called this after the famous Madeleine quote, that is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Because at the very heart of the thesis is this notion of what is modern sisterhood? If we're going to reclaim that from the feminists of the 1960s, what does it mean? Because it's really important that women have each other's backs. That's how we change the world, actually. And if we can create some monster global sisterhood of kick-ass women, we can make a difference. And so at the heart of what Albright has become is this organizing thought that sisterhood works. That's our sort of motto, if you like, that genuinely, if you can create these gangs of women, different ages, different stages, different industries, but bound together through shared experience and being able to drop their game face and help and support one another, then you can change things. You've just given us a very inspiring overview for why All Bride exists. Be great to hear, especially for those listeners not in the UK, what are the different elements that make up All Bride? (laughs) So if the essay question was, how do you change things for working women? Our hypothesis is this, that space makes a difference, buildings make a difference, they have a convening power, they're a metaphor for a movement. So when we first started off Albright, we held a load of different meetups just to kind of listen to what women wanted. And what we saw was that amazing things happen when there are a group of women in the room. So then the thinking was, if we could do this all day, every day, how would that feel? And the answer was, you know, that would be amazing. So how can we create spaces that celebrate women, that lift women up, that are not anti-men? And it's very important to address that head on. So if we've got these spaces, men will be very welcome in the building. They'll be treated with dignity and respect. But we think it's totally possible to have and support and be 
pleased and proud of the enlightened men who are with you on the journey alongside celebrating women. So space is pillar one. Pillar two is that there is a skills gap or at least a perceived skills gap for women. And the feedback when we started those early events a couple of years ago was I don't know how to do it. And women are much more likely to go from I don't know X to I can't do it at all. I daren't take the risk because I don't want to fail. This is sort of very endemic. So what we've built is the Albright Academy. It's completely free. It's a digital education platform. It's a 10-week course. We have two versions, one for female entrepreneurs and one for female execs. You sign up in a cohort of 2,000. We run it every other month. And yes, it's about the learning we've filmed, every female founder and exec you've ever heard of. But it's also about, to our point on Sisterhood Works, the community that emerges off the back of that. So everyone connects through Albright Messenger and they connect with one another. And then the third thing that we started with and we try to focus on is how do you get women funded as entrepreneurs? So we invested in Close the Small Venture Capital Fund. It backed eight fantastic UK-based female founders. That's not our day job, but we think it's important. So now in the spaces, we host monthly pitch events where we have a room full of angel investors looking to back women. And I know as a female entrepreneur who's raised capital over 20 years, sometimes it's more difficult to get funded than it is for a man to get funded as the data bears out. In spite of that, women get better returns than men as an FYI. So as an investor, it's just a sound and de-risked investment choice. So those are the three pillars. Incredible. You talked earlier about sort of the lessons and, you know, it's not always easy to raise capital. You found out from firsthand experience in your journey to date. What would you say were one of two of the key lessons in your earlier businesses? I think for me and as an investor, I look for three things in the companies that I back and they're three Gs conveniently. The first is graft. It's just hugely, hugely hard work doing this. When people say to me, you know, you're so lucky to run your own businesses and and you guys know this, you think, oh Christ, luck's got nothing to do with it. You know, I work every hour that God sends. So you're looking for someone who's got a mindset where they recognize and they understand what lies ahead of them. The second G is grace. You're looking for people that you can work with. One of the hardest things as an entrepreneur where the situation is very high pressure often is to show grace under pressure, to back someone who can build relationships and bridges rather than burn them. And that's important. But the final and most important G is grit. You know, honestly, there's the Woody Allen quote about 80% of success is about turning up. I think my version of that is that what I look for and what I know to be the case is have you got the stomach for it? Because there will be days and weeks and months where it drives you mad. You feel fed up with it. You don't feel like you're making a breakthrough. You feel like you want to give up and it's all about whether or not you do. So that grittiness, and obviously there's a very famous book about grit, which I would recommend reading. It's a great read. And what I really believe is that managed adversity makes us stronger. So as long as you feel in control of the outcome, then actually it's hugely positive driver to growth. But I think for many entrepreneurs, when they get started, it's not so much about the money and there are lots of tricks and tips around money but actually it's around that entrepreneurial mindset and those three g's because i think if you can frame that then you're much more likely to be able to convince investors to part with cash Mm, sure and can you think of a moment when back in your earlier career where you know you nearly threw it all in and but for either something someone advised you or encouraged you you know was oh my god all the time i mean we have to talk about this stuff because people generally don't exactly it's why we're here yeah 
It's really, really hard. I mean, Love Home Swap is a good example because that looks like such a stellar success story. Five years, I saw a film on a plane that inspired me to set up the business. I launched it with 200 homes. I sold it with hundreds of thousands, 53 million, all the rest of it. It was so hard, so hard. And we screwed loads of things up and there were, you know, vast swathes of time where I thought, this is hard. And are we going to be able to pull it off? But I suppose part of it for me is always sort of two mantras. One is, what's the worst that can happen? This sometimes gets you into trouble. But, you know, I always think we might as well, what's the worst that can happen? And the second is, what else would I do? And the answer for me is, this is all I know how to do, for better, for worse. So I think that kind of keeps you going. And and additionally, and again, to this point on what does it take or what do I look for, you need to have someone with the sheer bloody-mindedness to think, screw everyone, I'm going to make this work. And sometimes that's the only thing that keeps you going. I think it depends... You need to figure out what works for you. For me, and my team will tell you if there's not, this has not happened on a daily basis, I need to get up and hit the punch bag, like physically hit the punch bag. And that's my thing. I box most mornings because if I don't, it's just too, there's too much, you know, because you, you can get very, very frustrated and that doesn't help anyone. So finding a way to manage the process and recognizing that with a love home sort, everyone will tell me it was really quick, but five years does not feel quick. To the earlier point, you've got to have the stomach for it and you've got to be a self-starter. You, you've got to talk yourself off the ledge. Yes, you need a great sisterhood, people around you in Albright. I have Anna and it makes it much more fun if you have, as you two know, a co-founder who's with you on the bus because generally one of you's up and the other one's down and vice versa. But even so, you need to be quite self-disciplined, I think, to use those dark days and times and things that go wrong to drive you. How important were advisors or mentors to you during that journey if you didn't have, in all cases, a co-founder? Yeah, absolutely. And there are some fantastic people in my life who've been in my working life for a long time who I would turn to for advice. I mean, I'm very close to my father, who's a lawyer. I still would talk to him and say, what do you think about this or that? I've had one investor a guy called Jonathan Goldstein, he's an Albright investor, he's backed me in all of my businesses, I would pick up the phone to him. However, advice is advice, and what you decide to do is on you. I think that sometimes you can take too much advice in, and actually you've got to trust yourself and back yourself. So yes, it's great to have people around you, champions, people whose advice you trust. But in the end, I think the process is all about listening and then working out what you think about it. And a lot of what you do as an entrepreneur, the better for worse is you follow your gut. So sometimes it's helpful to hear what other people think and sometimes it isn't very helpful to hear what other people think. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, following your gut, because we have people ask us and they say, well, how do you know when to follow your intuition and when not to? What would you say to that? I mean, some of it's just experience. You know, if you think about it, I'm nearly 20 years into doing this. And some of it's the hard yards of just getting things wrong in the past. So even this morning, Anna and I were talking about the LA club. And in a year since we really started going with this first club, we're now on to club number three, we've cocked up loads of things. So now we know, okay, this is the blueprint. So some of it's experience. I think honestly, the hardest thing and the thing I still get wrong all the time is your gut on people. I don't think we're always right. I think we continue to make bad hires. I think entrepreneurs do everything in a hurry. 
I think some of my biggest mistakes in the past and one of my big weaknesses is hiring in a hurry. I think you just roll the dice whenever you hire someone. We are having to hire quite big teams and we will probably get half of it wrong. So sometimes you trust your gut on the big stuff. I trust my gut on the strategic direction of the business when the time is right to push for more money, when the time is right to scale globally. But the people bit is the hardest bit. It's the hardest bit of anything. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Because a a lot of it is qualitative. Absolutely. It's just very hard. You meet someone three times and you say it's going to work. And neither side knows whether it will or it won't. I wanted to just come back to raising funds. You said you've got all sorts of tips and tools on how to raise funds. So you've just gone through a funding round recently. I think you raised around £9 million, which is pretty significant. So what would be, you know, your top tips for somebody who was thinking about, you know, they've got a business and they really know that they need to raise some funds? What should they be thinking about? Know the business, know your numbers and understand the unit economics. I mean, it's very geeky raising money. What you need to be able to explain in under three minutes to someone is why the market for the business is huge, what the business does and why nobody else does it, what you've built so far. So if we talk about the Albright, what do we need to do? So we needed to frame the argument, only 2.17% of women are raising capital, one in six in leadership positions, all the stats. So show why there's a problem. Show how big the market opportunity is and then talk about why this solution is differentiated. So we're the first members club for women in the UK. There's no digital education platform that's tailored towards working women. Talk about what we've achieved so far. So to date, we've raised X capital. We've opened one club. The numbers look like this, this number of members, this number of brand partners. This number. So if we had... Three times that, we could open three more clubs. You see what I mean? Got to be very, very logical. Um, Where do women fall down on occasion? Because we have eight female founders a month in pitching. Frankly, they don't sell the story confidently enough. They don't know their numbers well enough. It's not okay to say, oh, I don't really know, and someone else does the numbers. You have to be front, back, and sideways fluent on that stuff. And I think that they don't sell the size of the market opportunity sufficiently. So I think it's all of that, but in a way, without being able to demonstrate something that you've built and something that you've spent to deliver a certain amount of revenue, why would I believe that if you had 10 or 20 times that amount of money, it would be 10 or 20 times or more bigger? So you've got to start with something. We often see women pitching an idea and that doesn't really work. Back to this point on the three Gs, you've got to work really hard, evenings, weekends or whenever, to develop that idea. And you've got to have built relationships sufficient that you understand your consumer in some shape or form. And you've got to show that you are willing to put yourself out in order to drive that business on. Yeah. And so willing to put yourself out and also have invested some of your own money. Yeah. I mean, I would see that as absolutely mandatory for Anna and I with Albright. That was a very physical thing. You know, it was absolutely the case that we were expected to do that. But either show that you can raise money from friends and family or do something to get started. But really, a lot of women are pitching a dream and it's just too early. And that doesn't make me feel that they're going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to remember that it's other people's money. Absolutely. We've read that you think it's really important for women in particular to learn not to be liked. That can be really hard to do. What would you advise or what tips do you have from your experience on getting yourself through that? 
I think it's, if I look over a 20-year stretch about how I've developed as an entrepreneur and as a person, I think I've got a monumentally thicker skin than the one I started with 20 years ago. So I do think that can be learnt, taught, developed. Anna and I, in this business, bear in mind what the objective is, change things for women. Not everyone's going to like it. And not just men. A lot of women don't like it either. And you make decisions as to what your approach is. So for us, having men in the tent has been really important. Not all women agree with that. So what we do is quite high profile and we take a a view. And if you take a view, a lot of people will disagree with you. And because of the world in which we live, a lot of that disagreement can be very personal. Anna and I probably turn to each other once a day and say, rhino hide, darling. That's our catchphrase. Because it comes at you. And with this business, it comes at you like you wouldn't believe. Because it's important for us to have a public face. And that means that you open yourself up to very public criticism about everything. Honestly, I think back to this point on sense of humor, we just laugh about most of it now. I mean, if we're described as, you know, bad feminists or people don't like our clothes, shoes, hair, face, whatever. I mean, really? So, you know, I think you just start to find it funnier. But I honestly think that women tend to have a desire to be liked, to be friends, to be thought well of more than men. And I think it holds them back because not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to like what you do. If you're successful and you're known to be successful as a woman, then you'll come in for a lot of criticism in any shape or form about a lot of your lifestyle choices. And you honestly have to just let it bounce off you. Yeah, absolutely. And and we see it in what we do all the time, this desire to be liked. It's understandable. It comes from hundreds of thousands of years ago when actually it was really important for us to be liked. But nowadays... As you say, in order to get on, you just can't have everybody like you. Have you been surprised by the level of criticism or, you know, personal attacks you and Anna have received? I think it's been really interesting when we've taken a stance on something. And in particular, a couple of months ago, when we closed our investment round, we brought in a male chairman and that became a big story. And we really welcomed it because it highlighted a really important part of the debate for us, which is what about men or what's the point of men? (laughs) Just to reframe it. (laughs) And we have a very particular view on this because we're commercial operators. The men who've been with us on our journey have been hugely supportive. We raise significant amounts of capital for this business. You don't raise capital from women, unfortunately, and at the moment. And that's something that we would like to be a part of changing. And also, that's how you drive change. And so for us bringing in our male chairman, who's a very high profile chairman, who is a significant investor in the business, who's the father of daughters, has been a really important part of ensuring that we're part of the mainstream conversation that happens around boardroom tables. Were we surprised by some of the response to that, yeah. Why were we surprised? I think because we see things through a very pragmatic commercial lens and actually sometimes the story's bigger than that. I think that it flagged some really interesting things for us. So in the way that the press reported it and a lot of the debate played out, there was a huge confusion over the difference between a CEO and a non-executive chairman. We had hired a non-executive chairman, Anna and I, the CEOs of the business. It was a lot of journalists who wrote about it who were all women 
didn't get that. So that's on us, right? We've got to do a better job of explaining how businesses run. And I think it's back to this point on the Albright Academy that we need better business education for women. So were we surprised? Yes. Should we have been surprised? Not sure. Was it very helpful? Yes. And if you were to be listening to yourself and thinking about yourself when you were, say, 30 years old, what advice would you give yourself? I'd probably pick a different husband, but that's a slightly <laughs> side point. Okay. <laughs> and there is something in that, actually, which is our life, I'm divorced, our life partner for women who work, ambitious, smart-minded women, which is how we describe the Albright woman, is the most important choice of your life. And really thinking about what a partnership looks like. And I think for me, I've really thought about that with my business partner. Perhaps in my 30s, I didn't think about that quite so clearly. So I think that's really important. I think that the other thing is to try and enjoy the journey. I'm so goal-oriented. And because I have an attention span for these businesses, you know, I do five years, sell it, do five years, sell it. And if you know that's how you are, you're very much pushing towards a goal. And I think looking up to the sunlit uplands from time to time, one of the best pieces of advice I received was about celebrating the short-term successes. So sometimes you just have a really good day, but whether or not it contributes towards the end goal is sort of not relevant. So make sure that you mark that. We're hopeless at that because it's the next thing and nothing's ever good enough. So just trying to say to my 30-year-old self, try and enjoy it a bit more will probably be helpful. Yeah. And you sound like you're enjoying it now. Yeah, we're having such a ball. We really are. But, you know, for lots of different reasons, life becomes a lot easier when you've got nothing to prove. And I think, I feel, you know how you feel, in my 40s, to the point I'm Rhino high and everything, I just don't care as much what other people think. I think that you get to a point where you're doing it for the love of it. Some of that's because I've created a life for myself and the children where we're financially secure, everything else. So this one, back to the point on how do you keep going through the days that aren't so great, we keep going with this one because we really believe in the mission. And that's slightly different from other businesses that I've had. So honestly, even when it's awful and there are awful days, we always drink a gin and tonic and have a laugh. That's so good. And, and a mission and purpose can make all it the does. difference, as yeah, you say. It does, yeah, yeah, for sure. And here, here to that, you know, for sure. We're conscious of time, Debbie. How can listeners find out more about Albright, you? Well, Albright's easy. So you can find the club at theallbright.com. You can find the academy and everything else at allbrightcollective.com. Me, I mean, God knows, really. I don't, you've probably heard enough, to be quite honest. <laughs> Stick my name in Google and there's more if you want it. We can't thank you enough. It's, I'm sure people will be interested because you had an uh, amazing journey. And what's so exciting is what's emerging now, I think. We're both such passionate advocates as well. That's why Don't Stop Us Now exists. So thank you so much for your time today, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Thanks so much. One thing that strikes me about Debbie is her drive and determination and how she certainly doesn't do things by halves, does she? And she has such big plans for Albright. Yeah, she certainly does. And she's clearly unafraid to have a strong point of view. She's absolutely fine with not everyone agreeing or liking her for it. I know. And I just love that term she and her co-founder Anna use when they get criticised. Rhino hide, darling. Yeah, I love that. Maybe we should start using it. What do you think? 
Absolutely. And please remind me to, because I know I really could do with it. I definitely can take things too personally sometimes. Mm, sometimes. <laughs> Thanks. I actually, I love the fact she's so honest and doesn't gloss over how hard it is to be a successful entrepreneur. It's really refreshing. Yeah, it really is. Well, that's our episode done and dusted. Watch out for our next episode in two weeks' time with a woman who's creating, wait for it, digital humans. Her name's Mari Johnson. And if you're enjoying our show, then please tell a friend. See you then. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.